uh, there hasn't been any podcast break. You wouldn't think. But you've been out of the country. <laughs> uh, yeah. Fortunately, I got back through customs just in the <laughs> just nick of time. <laughs> Thankfully, you live literally on the airplane exit. So. I do. <laughs> it's wonderful to be so close to the airport. Yeah. Um, I feel like one of those signs that's like, if you lived here, you'd be home by now. Yeah. You know, that's, it's like I live literally almost in the airport yeah it's I wonderful. mean I, I think about it every time because when I come to your house it's like your exit is also the exit to BWI except mm-hmm. BWI is to the left okay. and I go to the right yes. to your house it's perfect so now if you want to come and stalk me yeah. <laughs> you know exactly <laughs> where I live in a few mile radius of the airport <laughs> right you can also use my driveway park here yeah and get an uber to the airport lots of people do that they love it i have i have a full service to the airport <laughs> i should pay a shuttle driver to like bring oh, people back and my forth because <laughs> it happens so regularly at this point oh god I would, that would be such a great service like come to our house have a cocktail on the porch <laughs> wait for your shuttle <laughs> enjoy the sights and sounds of Catonsville. <laughs> right yeah look at the city look at baltimore from far far away but we're not here to talk about planes or no, trains or no, automobiles no. we're here to talk about history on the rocks with katie and Allie. this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance but keep in mind we're drinking the entire time and we are not historians no no <laughs> I was on the island where the oh, Mirabal sisters are from. That's true. I was telling everybody all about it, and they were like, "Shut up, please, don't shut up." Hear it. We're not talking about the execution of three <laughs> young women. We're drinking. That's for Thursday. <laughs> I'm just so it's you know what it's muscle memory, drinking, and talking about women's rights. Yeah, it just goes hand in hand. It for does. Us. Sorry, <laughs> um, but you know what. You're busy. Yeah. You are about to go on your own trip, and you're trying to fill the little tiny carry-on approved bottles filled yeah. with your shampoo. 3.4 ounces. Your, uh, body wash. Like, anything that you need that's liquid, you're putting in those tiny bottles. Yo, can you believe I fit all those clothes in a carry-on? I cannot. I did not check a bag. I love not checking bags. I know. I will do anything to not check yeah. a bag. I took, like, five I'm, pairs of shoes, too. I'm that person. Fucking crazy. <laughs> Um, but so you're packing, you're filling your little bottles and you don't want to get the shampoo confused with the conditioner, confused with the body wash. So we're going to describe these women for you. So you don't have to stop what you're doing and look at, look up pictures of them on your phone. (laughs) We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing the wonderful and beautiful and woman with a poreless face. <laughs> no pores, not a pore to be seen. Estee Lauder. Love it. Uh, Estee had short, curly, blonde hair. She dressed very waspy-esque. <laughs> uh, she spoke kind of like a blue blood from my understanding. I love that. Uh, so... She definitely tried to put on an air of wealth that maybe she didn't have. Uh, (laughs) She wore large pearl jewelry and ascots and hats and scarves. She had these long eyelids that were perfect for her, like, teal eyeshadow that she really loved. Uh, She had high cheekbones. And in some pictures, especially younger pictures, she kind of looks a little bit like a young Meryl Streep. Mm. But then other ones doesn't look like her at all. Her makeup was always to the nines. Mm-hmm. She did not go out in public not looking perfect. Um, it's interesting because she's 
very pretty, but not noticeable in any way. She's mm-hmm. like very normal looking pretty, but definitely looked a decade younger than she was because mm-hmm. of her skincare mm-hmm. routine. Uh, and just charisma oozes, oozes from this woman's body. I love that. Estee Lauder, <laughs> Estee baby. Lauder. <laughs> what does your person look like? I think we all know this one. Oh, we all know this person. I am doing Misty Copeland. She is a young black woman who is most known for being lean and extremely muscular. She is very fit because she is a professional ballet dancer, a principal ballet dancer, among many other titles. So she can typically be seen in very cool costumes with her most iconic costume being the Firebird costume, which is a full body red leotard with a red and orange and blue headdress. It looks amazing. Um, But as far as how she looks in a normal day. Streetwear. Um, <laughs> we call them street, street clothes wear. at dance. Okay, are you wearing your street clothes or your costume? <laughs> oh, I'm going to wear my street clothes. But she's a very stylish woman. Um, she has a shoulder-length brown hair. She has a V-shaped smile. I don't know how else to describe it. I feel like her smile is V-shaped. It, like is. it really does go up at the corners. Um, she has an like oval-shaped face. And she has these dark eyes that her smile just absolutely accentuates. Um, And the other defining feature of her face is a mole on her left eyebrow that sometimes you can see and sometimes you can't Mm -hmm. because she covers it up with makeup. Stage (laughs) makeup is a lot. Yes. A lot, a lot. But it's funny because I would be like, oh, she has a mole. Oh, wait. Did she? I don't know. But like, yeah, so I don't know when she decides to and when she doesn't, but it does seem to be most often when she is on stage, she covers it. Mm -hmm. Um, But if she's doing like, interviews or other things like that she doesn't right so i don't know it's very interesting i but. bet it's just that the stage makeup's thicker oh probably yeah. Haley berry most recently at the little mermaid mm-hmm. um also has a mole on one of her eyebrows really? and like you can see it in all of the little mermaid shots but then again sometimes when she has on like full stage makeup mm-hmm. you can't see it yeah but, well yeah. that's what misty copeland looks like misty ah gorgeous <gasps> well this is a drink that i don't want to melt no, I don't. So, so we got to start drinking it immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it? <laughs> it's called a touch of Este. And it is frozen berries. I used frozen banana and strawberries and then fresh blackberries, a cup of ice, white rum, and rum chata. Okay. So I wanted to use the white rum to make it a little bit of a stronger smoothie-esque drink, but the uh-huh. rum chata to make it like creamy, creamy to mm-hmm. pair with the banana. Um, and then I put fresh raspberries in the top. I love it. Cheers. Cheers. I love this. Yeah. I really do. We don't use a lot of banana. No. So this is interesting. Yeah. And this is two weeks in a row or, mm-hmm. or a couple weeks of blended drinks, which is very exciting for mm-hmm. us. It's summertime. Um, well, when you said it a couple weeks ago, I was like, you're right. I need to like, because sometimes I do it because I'm like, it's going to be a nuisance. Yeah. I don't really <laughs> feel like it. And I'm like, no, it's summertime. I'm not working. Yeah. Well, and also like this cocktail, it's, it tastes just like a morning smoothie would, but it has that delightful, like, cinnamony, like, rum chata flavor. Like, it's so good. I yeah. personally love this. It's really nice. <laughs> it's really nice. Okay, so tell me what you know about Estee Lauder. Okay. I know that we interviewed an author who wrote a book about her. It was a historical fiction. And I learned a lot from her there. But from I didn't know anything about her before that. I knew that her name was a company but i did not know that essay lauder was an actual person mm-hmm. <laughs> so 
So now I know she was a person and she was very ambitious with her skincare and her makeup line. And I know that she like went to some pretty crazy lengths to like make it. She, the thing I took away from her when we did that interview was she was a fucking hustler. Yeah. And like, not in a bad way. No. Yeah. Just like someone who was like, I know this is good. And the whole fucking world is going to know how good this is. She like, won't take no for an answer type of girl. Yeah. So that's what I know about her. (laughs) That, I mean, that's essay in a nutshell. (laughs) So we did use the, um, book fifth Avenue glamor girl, which we did, uh, an interview with what's her name? Ren- oh, Renee Rosen. Renee Rosen. We did an interview with her. Actually, we've done two interviews yes. with her now. She's so good. Yeah, right? she's a really great I author. And she's writing an upcoming book about Barbie. I about know. Handler, which it's we're very perfect. excited about. <laughs> and it's just really nice because all of her historical fictions are like that. They're very yeah. female centric, very cool. This one was neat because um, I read the whole thing for this episode, and Este is like a character but not the main character the Mm -hmm. main character is a fictional character uh named gloria and she is friends with estee lauder so you're learning estee lauder's story while this other woman is having her fictional love story Mm -hmm. which is really nice Mm -hmm. because you can get details without feeling like you're reading a biography about estee lauder yeah i also read wikipedia which is surprisingly short for estee lauder it's not like only a paragraph but it's it's pretty short for like what she did with her life Mm -hmm. uh i went to the estee lauder company page and they have a whole bio on her and her background and pictures of her and her family and then um i read a couple other like biography pages online yeah so let's get into it i'm excited (laughs) josephine Esther Mincer. Wow. I love when we start off just a completely different name. A completely different name. (laughs) Not her name. Well, she was born in Queens, New York. Wow. But she would never tell you that. (laughs) Her birthday (laughs) is said to have been (laughs) July 1st, 1908 by her. But that's probably not what her birthday was. <laughs> uh, her birthday was most likely around two years earlier than that. She okay. did a lot of younging herself down. <laughs> I will say, when I did this research, it reminded me so deeply of the Madame Tussaud mm. research. Yes. Because Estee Lauder and Madame Tussaud both wrote an autobiography about themselves that is false. Like, they wrote a book about themselves giving fake details about their lives. And it's like, yo, dude, what you did is cool on its own. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't have to judge it up. But they're zhuzhers. So she is a zhuzher just like that. Este, the zhuzher. Or at this point, Josephine. Um, her, she came from a family of Jewish immigrants and was one of many siblings and half siblings. Her mother was a Hungarian Jew named Rose. Her dad, uh, was from, I guess at the point it was Czechoslovakia. He's Czech and his name was Max. Um, Este, I think that the reason that she zhuzhes up her information is the same thing that makeup and body lotions do for you. They just take, like, your natural beauty and give it a little bit of extra. So if you want to hear Este's story, it's called Este Lauder Beyond the Magic. But that's going to be fake details. (laughs) So 
even her obituary in the New York Times observed she was a New Yorker, not an aristocrat at all. But they were saying it like a compliment. Like, no, she's ours. Like, don't let her fake to you like she's from somewhere else. Um, But for most of her story, she said that she was from Vienna. She was an aristocrat from Vienna. But she's like from Corona, like Queens. (laughs) She grew up in Corona. Um, Anyway. She said she had a house with a stable and a chauffeured car. What? I don't know. I don't know why she said that. I I needed to start with all these details because I need to because it's also it it tells you so much about her. It really does. Mm-hmm. Like because like she I she wanted so badly yeah. to fit into the New York social scene, mm-hmm. and she does eventually. That's well, the thing. She breaks through. And here's the thing, too. It's also what you had to do. Because, mm-hmm. frankly, back in the day, no one was going to find out. Mm-hmm. Who, like, who's going to know? Who's going to know? You go across state lines, nobody knows who you fucking are. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, she's alive during World War II also. So it's mm-hmm. not like people weren't being discriminated against for being Jewish. Like, right. mm-hmm. there's still discrimination all in, in the U.S. during World War II for mm-hmm. that. So, like, she is just kind of covering up her identity in general. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing about, like, New York, especially at this time. It's like you could – people say about New York, you can go there and be whoever you want to be. Not anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people will find out your baggage in a second. They will hunt you down. Hunt you down. Back then, you really could just go and be like, I'm an heiress yeah. from – From Vienna. Vienna. That's it. That's who I am. Okay. That's it. Perfect. Good. You say the right words. You're in. Walk the walk, talk the talk. Mm -hmm. And she did. But for real, her mother was an immigrant who moved to the United States with five children to meet her then husband. But in 1905, her mother married someone else, Max Mincer, a shopkeeper who had also immigrated to the U.S., and um, so Este, I think, was the second of that relationship. So she's got like five older half siblings, an older full brother, herself. There's a lot of kids involved. Este is a variation of her nickname, Esti. So there is a Jewish European name that they wanted to use for her that's spelled E S Z T I, but they decided that it was too foreign sounding. So they went with josephine esther it's like a variation of esther from the Mm -hmm. bible so este became her nickname eventually when she lost her cosmetic or when she launched her cosmetic perfume empire she added the little accent mark onto the end to make it look more french and began pronouncing it with an accent i love that este louder Um, and, uh, Lauder is her, um, married name, her married last name. So that's not completely made up. Okay. She showed interest in beauty from an early age. Apparently, she loved to brush her mother's long hair and apply face cream. I don't know if that's true, <laughs> um, but that's what she says. She graduates from high school in Newtown, at Newtown High School in New York. Most of her childhood was spent trying to help her family make ends meet. Like most of her eight siblings, she worked at her dad's hardware store. And this is where she gets her first taste of business and what it takes to be a real retailer and what is hard work and what's it mean to do customer service in New York City. You know, like mm-hmm. she is talking to adults and yep. selling them stuff at a very early age. Her childhood dream was to become an actress with her name in lights and flowers and a handsome husband. 
But her interest of beauty became stronger and stronger when her uncle came to live with them from Hungary. So he's like, okay, I'm also going to immigrate to the United States. Her uncle was a chemist. Um, but as you know, when people move to the United States, their degrees and careers aren't yeah. respected. Mm -hmm. So he was a chemist, but he would use that skill to create velvety skin cream, first in their kitchen and then in like a shed garage thing in their backyard. So she learns to make all these beauty creams from him. Mm -hmm. She's learning how to make them in the backyard. He also taught her how to apply them to people's faces, how to, to do facials in general, how to give massages. And Estee named, at that point, kind of still high school age, one of her uncle's blends, super rich, all-purpose cream, and begins selling it to her friends and people in the neighborhood. She... um spread these lotions and stuff to local salons eventually um but one the, the way that she did that is one day she's in a salon getting her hair done in a place called house of ash blondes and the salon owner is like oh my god essay like your skin is beautiful um and soon she returned to the beauty parlor to like hand out her uncle's <laughs> cream and demonstrate how to use it and they're so impressed. They're like, set up a table and just sell these in here. And Estee saw her product as like jars of hope. Yeah. She would give out free samples to everyone in town. And then they would come back and find her for more. Because they would work. Yeah. And that's like, can you imagine not having good face lotion? I, it would drive me bananas. I mean, I still feel like I haven't found my exact one. Mm. I've tried so many ones. Um, I'm in the midst of a horrible breakout right now. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I want one, but also I'm not willing to pay for one. So that's yeah. also like <laughs> they're so expensive. <laughs> yeah, they're really expensive. But like I know when we went to LA, I didn't pack my face lotion because mm. it was too big of a like ounceage. Mm -hmm. Um, and it took me three weeks to get my face back to normal after really? getting home. Yeah. So this time I bought one of those little bottles that are the right uh -huh. ounces and like spooned it in. I was yeah. like, I need to take them yeah. away. Um, okay. Buying, selling, et cetera, et cetera. She just, this is a young girl. And I mean, Estee Lauder products now obviously have very professional packaging, but she didn't have any of that. Like she had to, figure out how to package them. And mm -hmm. she had to buy jars and buy like free sample things. Free samples of creams were not a thing until Estee Lauder. Really? Or of perfume. So like when you open up a magazine and you get that little free sample, she was the first person that was like, if I'm not putting it on a woman's face for free, she's not going to buy it. Yeah. Yep. She would touch every client. She would hand things out. People thought she was crazy. Yeah. They were like, you're giving your product away. And she was like, but watch them. They'll come back for it yep. if they understand that it works. I feel like we have like those people at mall kiosks who like <sighs> run, run at you with, yeah. you know, dead sea salt yeah. scrub. <laughs> now you can just be like, I have COVID. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Leave me alone. But yeah, that's exactly. She did inspire that type of. Yeah. That type of sales pitch. Okay. So in 19, in the 1920s, Estee meets Joseph Lauter at that point with a T. They married in 1930 and moved to Manhattan. Shortly after, they adopted the surname Lauter with a D, correcting a misspelling that dated back to when Joseph's father had immigrated. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So they switched it 
back. Mm-hmm. They fixed it back to the way it was supposed to be. And he had come from Austria. He's also Jewish, mm-hmm. Austrian Jewish, to the United States. The couple had their first child, Leonard, on March 19th, 1933. And from my understanding, um, I didn't see this in a lot of research, but Renee Rosen, the author that we interviewed, said that her son is the one that came up with the slanted lipstick oh that's right so they were Mm -hmm. all shaped like bullets initially um but the one side would get kind of like worn down and like it was weird to use and uh he was like why don't we just shape it like this right and like cut the top off evolutionary yeah (laughs) change now all lipstick yeah is like that that little slant on the end so that's pretty cool good job leonard he's also like Still alive and in charge. I think he's the company's, like, um, president emeritus. So, like, retired Mm -hmm. president. And then, like, the grandson is, like, the actual president. Okay. But it's still in the family. I love that. I know. That's pretty cool. But it's she had two sons and, like, grandsons. So it's, like, all boys and in charge of this famous makeup company that she <laughs> built from the ground up. Yeah. Which I also think it's really cool, a mother bringing your sons up to wealth. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's usually the opposite story, yeah. especially from that time period. So um, I do want to put in here something kind of weird. Her husband, Joseph, fucking is obsessed with her, loves her. She was not the best wife. Um, He did absolutely everything he could. It was during the Great Depression. He couldn't really keep a steady job. He was a pretty bad salesman. And he was supportive of her and doing everything, like, that she needed. But, like, she wanted to be rich. Yeah. And she wanted to have a rich husband. So they actually divorce in like 1939. Um, I mean, he was like taking care of their son while she was doing her career and like not whining about it, which is crazy at that time period. She just wanted a wealthier man. I mean, she straight up divorces him, goes to Florida, dates all these other like really wealthy people who kind of like turn her down because they're using her. But anyway, they eventually get remarried. Wow. In 1942. And she's like, her quote is, I married young and assumed that I'd missed out, uh, but soon found out that I had the sweetest husband in the world. So they they do have a second child after their remarriage. I love that. So that's nice that both of their sons do have the same father, Mm -hmm. even though like there was a lot of in between. That's really cool. There's like a couple of years in between where she was just like, I was, and she was, she was shooting for the stars with all her charisma. And I think she just felt like he was holding her back. And then I think she realized he was helping her and they became business partners when they got remarried. He stopped all his other work and came to work. He says with her, but really for her. (laughs) He was working for her 100%. Well, and I also like that, like, she kind of knew what she needed to do at that time. So instead of, like, just cheating on him Mm -hmm. and, like, running off for a little bit, she's like, I'm going to get a divorce. I'm going to, like, do this a little more officially so that, like, we can keep our social standing. You know, like, yeah, she did it right. Yeah, she did. (laughs) She sowed her wild oats correctly. Yeah. And, I mean, she went to Florida, but not just to go to Florida. She would go during the off season when everybody, all the rich people from Long Island and, you know, Manhattan were going to Florida. She was like, well, they can't live with without my face cream down there. Yeah. So she would just go and sell it to them in a different state and then come back. I was like, you're a nut. (laughs) That's crazy to just pick up and leave with no expectation of money. Yeah. 
take all your product with you? <laughs> okay. So back to it. Essay is selling skincare and makeup in beauty salons across New York and in Florida during the off season, demonstrating to women. She said, you never sell to a person without touching them, which is why the touch of Estee is the drink. Put your hands on their face. Give them the skin. Constant sales were a woman, constant marketer. After years of operating independently, all on her own in these salons, she makes her business official in 1946 after the war by forming a corporation that still bears her name today. At that time, she and her husband were the only people in the business, and they only offered a few products. It was her skin cream, a couple skin cream things, one shade of eyeshadow, one shade of lipstick. She was (laughs) very picky. She was like, why would I offer more shades of eyeshadow and lipstick if I have the perfect formula that makes everyone look good? (laughs) It's like, Estee, come on. <laughs> because not everybody looks like you. She had this like red lipstick and this like turquoise eyeshadow that she thought was just, it looks good on everyone's eyes. And it did look good on people, but you can't do that. No. <laughs> With makeup and like different eye colors and hair tones. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. She just was very, very sure of herself. So. They only offered a few products, um, and they're, using, they're making them in her kitchen, on her kitchen table, in her kitchen sink, 24 hours a day, herself, her sons, her husband. I mean, until their house just became too small with yeah. all their orders, but they lived in, like, an apartment above a restaurant in New York, so then at nighttime, they rented out the restaurant sink, so they're making their stuff in the industrial sink downstairs. And they're using all natural products, which is why you can get away with doing it in your home. The FDA would not approve of this today. No. But there's this crazy story <laughs> where a maid uses the face cream by accident in somebody's house in a recipe she's making instead of mayonnaise. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it was all natural products, so the people didn't die. <laughs> which is great because back then, people were using mercury in their <gasps> face cream. No. Yes. People were putting, women were rubbing mercury on their face. Oh, my God. So she was one of the first people to be like, everything I'm giving you is all natural. I love that. Yeah. God, and what a great, like, because I remember this from the Renee Rosen Mm -hmm. episode, like, what a great sales pitch of, like, you can literally eat this face cream Mm -hmm. and be fine. Like, who else could say that about their beauty products? (laughs) Just Estee Lauder at that point. (sighs) You can't even put the other one on your face and be fine. You'll yeah, die really. from mercury poisoning. Yeah, seriously. Once Estee Lauder started to advertise, she insisted that the print images be both like aspirational, but then also approachable. She selected like one female face for her brand so that every time you saw it, it was recognizable. Mm-hmm. She picked this new palish turquoise color of jar. She had to remodel her packaging a lot to get it into department stores because it honestly just did look homemade. Mm. And when you're competing against some of the big names at the time, like Chanel, yeah, it can't look homemade. No, because like that is how people buy products, especially yeah. women. Like if oh, yeah. it looks good, you want to have it in your home. Right. I buy products that have nice packaging Mm -hmm. because when I see it it makes me happy and it makes me want to fucking use it it makes me feel good yeah like I bought this for myself and it makes me look good and it makes me feel good Mm -hmm. well she picked that pale blue turquoise packaging 
not only because she said it conveyed a sense of luxury, but at the time, most bathrooms had that, like, pale blue color. So it matched the decor of the bathroom. So people would leave it out, and then other people would see it That's so smart. when they went into the room. My parents had a blue bathroom growing up. Mine was yellow. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say, because you had one bathroom. In, no. One bathroom upstairs. Upstairs. And then, and then it was yellow. Downstairs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My, my primary bathroom in my childhood home was blue. Mm-hmm. And I always picture bathrooms as blue. So when so I read funny. that, I was like, oh, my God, yeah. a blue bathroom. <laughs> That's so crazy. Um, but... Estee would attend the opening of every salon that took her product. She would stay there for a week and instruct the girls that would sit at the table on sales techniques and how to put this product on women's faces. Always stylish and well-dressed. She is meeting with store buyers and beauty editors and doing her absolute best. She is a one-person outreach department. Decades before social media became mainstream, Estee like ran on word of mouth. That was her thing that um, you tell a person by telephone, by telegraph. You tell a woman and she's going to tell somebody else, Mm -hmm. which is true because we talk to our friends. So in 1953, she she launches her Youth Dew product, which is a bath oil that doubled as a perfume, which quickly became a big hit. She had a great nose fragrance. Mm -hmm. Her first fragrance smelled of like rose and patchouli and like a couple other things mixed together that would bring her olfactory fame. But in the 1950s, women would only wear perfume or any type of fragrance on special occasions, and she couldn't buy it. Mm -hmm. Perfume, kind of like jewelry used to be, was a gift from a man. So a a man would buy you a scent or buy you jewelry, so she made it like bath soap. Like, this isn't perfume. Right. It's bath oils. Yeah. So that women would start buying it for themselves, and then they, like, picked up a scent, and they're like, oh, I smell like Estee Lauder. That is so genius. And also, it's my dream to have my own, like, like when people, like, I had that happen in high school mm-hmm. once where I wore this very specific perfume mm-hmm. from Paxan. <laughs> uh, you smell like Katie. And someone was like, oh, my gosh, I smelled this smell the other day, and it smelled like you. And I was like, that's the biggest compliment. Mm-hmm. Like, I love having, like, oh, like, you smell like you. Like, that's such a... Mm-hmm. And you smell good. Like, yeah, <laughs> no, I absolutely like- agree. I had a student one time say I smelled like their mom because I was carrying oh. a cup of coffee. <laughs> like, you smell like my mom. Oh my gosh. I was like, I smell like coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least it wasn't like cigarettes. Like in yeah. my early days, you smell like my mom. <laughs> Funny. Um, yeah. So it was, this is an innovation that took the cosmetic industry by by storm. It changed the way that people made fragrances. It changed the way that fragrances were sold. And I mean, it ends up turning her startup company into a multi million dollar industry. Um, this like bath oil perfume esque stuff sold fifty thousand bottles in the first day or the first year. And by nineteen eighty four, it had sold one hundred and fifty million. Like oh perfume, my bath God. oils. I know. But how'd she do it? <laughs> Nobody wanted to carry her product in department stores. It's really hard to meet with the higher ups at Saks Fifth Avenue mm-hmm. and get them to take your stuff. Even twelve inches of counter space is too much counter space for an unknown. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get it at Saks, and she wanted Saks. Mm-hmm. I mean, she 
pitched to Macy's. She yeah. pitched to the other places, but she believed that she was Viennan aristocrat from Vienna. She wanted Saks Fifth Avenue. Um, and so the story goes, <laughs> she went into Saks with her scent and broke it on the floor in front of the perfume aisle. And people, uh, the women there would be like, what's that scent? I want that. And to get them to start asking for the Saks Fifth Avenue. And then I, I believe once she got her stuff, a small amount of stuff in Saks Fifth Avenue, she asked them for their mailing list, the, the regular uh-huh. customers, hand wrote a letter to each one of them that she had a free gift waiting for them at the Saks Fifth Avenue counter at the Estee Lauder station. So every regular person is coming to get their free Estee Lauder and then sitting there in the store while she puts it on their face and everybody's watching. And then they just keep coming back to buy more stuff from her. She hand wrote the entire mailing list of New York. Every she had no shame. Every wealthy woman in New York got a handwritten letter from Estee Lauder saying, I have free things for you. She gave away at the beginning. She gave away more than she sold. Oh yeah. But I bet that she is the epitome of like, you have to like spend money to make money. Oh, like the grind, she, baby, the grind. She could see so far into the future. I'm so impressed by that. And mm-hmm. I'm impressed with her just like reaching out to people because that's one of my biggest issues terrifying. in running my business. I hate asking people to use my services. It's so terrifying. <laughs> you know, even though like <laughs> sometimes they need it. Like, yeah. but I just, I'm, I don't want people to feel pressured and like yeah, to I sell things. Cause well, it's also so weird today because you don't want people to think you're doing like a pyramid scheme exactly yeah because reaching out has become very uncomfortable because of how some people abuse that yeah within your life like Mm -hmm. if your close friends and family are abusing you for money Mm -hmm. you don't want to then go buy that shit yes you don't trust anyone anymore yeah exactly so she was kind of before that (laughs) (sighs) um after like a year of pushing her product in New York. Finally, Saks Fifth Avenue gave her that counter space, like we said. They ordered $800 of her product, and because of all her letters and her free gifts, uh, the $800 of her product sold out in two days. <laughs> During, like, the tail end of the Great Depression. That's insane. I know. The business thrived over the next decade uh, with its expansion to overseas markets. She also launched her male line armes did you know that was her armes yeah that's her line for men what estee lauder owns that so armes so estee lauder is ultimately responsible for the fucking birkin bag yeah that's unreal and also clinique <laughs> she owns clinique what uh-huh she just started launching away. all these new lines. I had no idea about that. Yeah, I didn't either. I that's thought insane. it was just Estee Lauder. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a name I know. And then I kept reading, and I was like, there's all these other. She's responsible for, like, five brands. Those are the two, like, super famous ones. Oh, my God. So she's got fucking millions coming in. <laughs> As a result of her intense drive and ambition, Estee became one of the richest self-made women in the world. She ran in elite social circles, attending parties thrown by Nancy Reagan. She was also very warmly acquainted with our girl, Wallace Simpson. (laughs) She was also very close with Grace Kelly. Like, all these women knew her, loved her, went to parties with her. 
1973, she reduced her role in the company's day-to-day operations and re-signed, like, her posts, like, reassigned her post as president, but stayed the company's chairman of the board for a while, but her oldest son took over running the family business. In 1983, she suffered the loss of her husband, Joseph. In his Mm -hmm. honor, she established the Joseph H. Lauder Institute of Management and International Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Around the same time, this is when she wrote her book (laughs) that is hugely false about (laughs) her journey to success. And you know what? Even if the facts about her past are incorrect, everything she did, including lying about herself, got her to the top. Yeah. It's a lie, but it's a true lie. Right. Yeah. And like she really did do the work. You can't take that away from her. No. (laughs) Like she did the work. And I think like some people at some point, in her family were like you stole your uncle's like cream and she was like i've changed the recipe yeah so many times like right. did he teach me how to make cream originally sure sure, sure he did yeah but like he wasn't writing uh postcards to nancy reagan right. to like use the product it's like blame it's like if your high school science teacher was like you won the nobel prize like i taught you everything you know about science right. it's like Okay, let's be clear. Like you gave me the foundations. You told you told me what mass was. Right, yeah. <laughs> but I shifted it up and I did my own thing after that. Like, you know. I changed that would be like if I would took responsibility for everything any of my students did right. in the future. No, I would just be proud that they existed. Yeah. In 1985, she was the subject of a TV documentary called Estee Lauder, The Sweet Smell of Success. And explaining her success, she said, I've never worked a day in my life without selling. If I believe in something, I sell it and I sell it hard. (laughs) It's honest. Yeah. (laughs) The company was privately held for decades. Estee's company went public in 1995. At that time, the company, the business in general, was valued at $2 billion. Oh, my God. The company still remains in the family. Like I said, her oldest son, Leonard, is now the retired uh, chairman emeritus. Her younger son is in charge of Clinique. And her grandson is, like, in charge of the Umbrella Company. Okay. So I don't know who's in charge of Hermes. Uh, It's probably somebody else that's not familial, but I just that's the people in her family. She also dedicated a lot of her time and efforts to philanthropy. She sponsored a number of civic and cultural programs and other charities, including, for some reason, the restoration of the Palace of Versailles. I, <laughs> she really thinks she's an aristocrat. She really does. She's like, you know what they need in France? Or <laughs> let's fix you know Versailles. My cold cream. Yeah. Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette would love it. (laughs) Um, But then also a whole bunch of buildings and playgrounds in New York. So she brought the money home, too. She passed away in New York from a cardiac problem on April 24th, 2004. Estee was an iconic American entrepreneur, always in the know about the latest fashions. She had to compete against Chanel, Dior, um, some of the hardest companies to compete balenciaga like the Mm -hmm. hardest companies to compete against she was competing against Mm -hmm. as herself yeah not with a business just a woman in a kitchen Mm -hmm. she loved new york city and says that she drew inspiration from the sophistication and culture she eventually owned homes in france london palm beach among many other 
She loved traveling the world and going to museums and art galleries and going to fashion shows and just learning about customers and where they could come from and what they might want. She was a visionary and a role model for gut and gumption. And she like really created and ran one of the world's most prestigious and innovative companies out of a kitchen for a very long time. Today, the company engages with women in more than 150 countries and territories. Um, and just there's dozens of touchstone places where you can buy her products online. She did receive a French Legion of Honor for her help wow. in restoring Versailles. <laughs> She was the only woman on Time Magazine's 1998 list of the 20 most influential business geniuses in the 20th century. No way. The only woman on the list. Wow. She was inducted into the Junior Achievement U.S. Business Hall of Fame. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2004, the year she died. And she said famously, I never dreamed about success. I worked for it. <laughs> And that is Estee Lauder. <laughs> I love her so much. And it's funny because I feel like Chanel is such a person and a brand. Yeah. And I feel like Estee Lauder, the person, has kind of gone away in a weird way. It's mm -hmm. almost like the work has eclipsed her. Yeah. Which I guess she'd be proud of. But like yeah. People don't even, <laughs> you know, it's very different. It's like when you hear Vera Bradley, like, you know, Vera Bradley's a person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's b become very obvious Coco Chanel's a person and maybe even that's because of like Coco Chanel's misdeeds yeah you know mm -hmm. that like everybody's like oh she's a Nazi sympathizer and it's yeah like, oh. yeah <laughs> a, little <laughs> a little bit a little bit yeah um but I think maybe Estee Lauder just kind of flew under the radar yeah. just by putting her nose to the grindstone God, I love it that's Estee all right well she let's did go it. get another cocktail and we'll be right back let's talk about dance We're back with a drink that looks like a freaking sunrise. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Or a sunset, even. Thank you. Or the Firebird costume. Yes, slash that's a, what it's modeled after. Slash a, a tutu. <laughs> Who knows? There's so many interpretations here. There's so much going on with this cocktail. Yeah, it really um, is. So do you want to know what you are drinking? It is. And then I want to know how I'm supposed to drink it. Yes. So this is called the Firebird. Um, it is Fireball Whiskey. Creme de cassis, sweetened lime juice, and I also like I garnished it with a whole bunch of citrus, so grapefruit, orange, and lemon. And I just put a little spritz of each of them in there, and then you top the whole thing off with champagne. Um, so I wanted to make sure we had the creme de cassis and the champagne in there because um, it's a it's a French cocktail called a Cure Royale, and it's her favorite drink. Oh! Yes. I love when we know that. Yes. So um, it's her favorite drink, so I wanted to make sure we included that, but I also wanted to make it very different and unique because that is her whole thing. Mm. So cheers! Cheers! <laughs> to Misty! Also, maybe bring a plate to just, like, put your things on your fruit now i'm like oh no i'm gonna put it on my other paper we're sipping around the fruit it's just so much fruit so i'm gonna <laughs> especially the grapefruit is so big i'm gonna see what we do i'm gonna see all how right. it goes for me all right all right so what do you know about misty copeland <laughs> so misty copeland i was a a prodigy child ballerina she mm -hmm. 
was good from the time she was very young. Mm-hmm. It was obvious. Um, I think there was I there was some sort of custody situation. I don't understand it or know what it was, but I know that I feel like at some point um, there was a custody battle about her who was in charge of her. Uh, she is a black woman, mm-hmm. and ballet is is and was not traditionally. Um, like uh centered around black female performers Mm -hmm. she there's like three premier two or three premier ballet companies in the united states and she was the first uh like principal dancer for the american ballet theater i want to say uh and yeah she just has like one of these amazing stories and has inspired um you know women of color around the country and the world to like go after their dream of Mm -hmm. whatever it is that they have been excluded from in representation. And, uh, you know, she's just got the body of a Greek goddess because ballet dancers work out fucking constantly. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I've seen them change a lot of colors in like tights and Mm -hmm. point shoes and shit recently. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with the influx of just like, representing all skin tones in actual ballet uniforms costumes yeah you know what's funny is when we were planning out this season i really wanted to do a story around like black ballet dancers because i heard this incredible story on um article uh articles of interest Mm -hmm. which is all about clothes and they did a whole thing on ballet and how um black dancers for years have made an art out of painting their ballet shoes to mm-hmm. match their skin tones because that's what the pink is originally for. Right. To match white women's skin tone. <laughs> right. It's the same way that like band-aids are made. Exactly. And so now like they're coming out with these new lines of like, you know, multicolored, you know, ballet stuff. And there are still dancers of color who are like, I actually like painting my own because now it's like a thing that makes it personal to me. And uh, so I wanted to do, like, Black Ballet Dancers and Misty Copeland, but the Misty Copeland story ended up, like, totally <laughs> blowing me out of the water. <laughs> so I didn't get so much into that, but I did want to mention it because the Articles of Interest episode is so fascinating, so go check it out. Um, but, yeah, so we're going to get into Misty's story and her story alone. I got most of this from Wikipedia, a dance magazine. Um, it, there was a lot of YouTube videos that I watched and I listened to a really great episode of Ina Garten's podcast where she invites people over for dinner parties Mm -hmm. and they were just chatting in the garden and it was just absolutely lovely. Nice. And, but it's funny too, because then like I kind of cut out near the end because then like they're just cooking and I'm like, okay, well I don't need to listen to you make butternut squash puree right i just but, need your life yeah, story i just need your life story <laughs> excuse me misty wrong um, thing <laughs> but it was really nice and relaxing so anyways let's get into it do it misty danielle copeland was born in kansas city missouri on september 10th 1982 to sylvia de la serna and doug copeland she is the youngest of four children from her mother's second marriage and she has two younger half siblings one each from her mother's third and fourth marriages when misty was two years old her father left and she did not see him again until she was in her 20s wow Mm -hmm. and when she was three to come back after i know dick (laughs) apparently it's all good she Mm -hmm. said i wish i'd done this sooner but when she was three years old she and her siblings moved in with her mother's third husband 
in Bellflower, California, and then a few years after that, they moved to San Pedro to live with the fourth husband. They separated when Missy was 12 years old, and after that, the family of seven, because it's the mother and six children, they were just back and forth between boyfriends' houses, staying with friends, staying in motels, and when Missy was 13 years old, they moved into a Sunset Inn in Gardena, California. So at this point, Missy says they were basically homeless. I mean, living in an inn is homeless. Yes, they were living in a motel, all of them in one room. No. Like, Mm -hmm. Missy was like, because Ina Garten was talking to her, and she was like, I heard that, like, you would have loved to be a chef in another life. She was like, did you learn that from your mom? She goes, (laughs) my mom could not cook. She goes, we were living in motels. We were like, she was like, we were fending for ourselves, like, hoping to get a cup of noodle. Like, right. that was how it was yeah. in, my, in my household. Well, I mean, I, when I worked with somebody at Applebee's who they, their tips for the night would go towards paying to stay in a motel so they didn't have to sleep on the streets. Yeah. And I remember being like, and this was like an older gentleman who like worked there yeah. for that specific reason. Mm-hmm. I remember being like, oh my God, right. you're paying like, that's like a really paycheck to paycheck. If you're L- paying literally. to live with tips. Yeah. So many people in this country live like that. Yeah. And this is just, this is a reality. And this was her reality for her whole childhood, you know. Um, She was attending Dana Middle School at the time. And wanting to follow in her older sister's footsteps, Misty joined the drill team, which is basically (laughs) a cheerleading team, um, eventually becoming the captain. Her natural talent caught the attention of their coach, Elizabeth Canteen. And she convinced Misty to attend ballet classes at the local Boys and Girls Club. So the Boys and Girls Club was a place she was at anyways, mm-hmm. because especially for kids like her and her siblings, she was like, there was no other place to go <laughs> in between like school and like dinner. Like we had to have a place to go because her mom was working two jobs. You know, she's like, my mom was not home. So like we needed a place to go. Well, and think about all the stuff our parents paid for. Oh my God. You know, like yeah. the Boys and Girls Club, like that's free. It's you free. can go, you're taken care of. There's mm-hmm. classes, there's friends, there's fun. Exactly. So Elizabeth's friend, Cynthia Bradley, taught a free ballet class there once a week. And Elizabeth was like, you should go. You should go to this class, take ballet. Misty was nervous at first. She didn't even participate the first few times that she went. Uh, she would literally, like, sit on the bleachers in her, like, gym uniform and her socks and just watch. Because she was just, like, really nervous. She it's was intimidating. Like, That's not for me. Well, also, you don't know the jargon. No. Like, there's a lot of French in ballet. Mm-hmm. That's scary. It is. So, eventually, Cynthia Bradley pulled her off the bleachers And she said, in that first class, when Misty put her leg above her head and held it, she thought to herself, this girl is going to dance for kings and queens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cynthia Bradley soon invited her to train at her small dance academy at the San Pedro Dance Center, where, of course, she would receive a full scholarship. She was like, you don't have to pay for anything. I just want you to dance. But Misty couldn't. Her mom didn't have a car. She was working 12 to 14 hour days, two jobs. Her sister was already working two jobs. So there was just like no one to take her to these classes that were two hours away from her home, which was the motel. (laughs) But Cynthia believed in her so much that she offered to pick her up from school and take her to dance lessons and then drive her home. And that also made Misty a little nervous because she was like, this is so nice. But then like the first night it happened, she had to be like, 
turn into the motel. And yeah. Cynthia's like, you live here? And she's like, yeah. Yes, I do. And it's like, it was, it was hard for Misty because now she's like kind of entering this other world and she, now, she, now somebody knows because nobody at school cared. Nobody at school was asking, where's your house? Where do you live? Because a lot of the kids were in similar situations. Yeah. But now it's like. And you can hide it. You can lie you if can you lie. need to. Of course. But no, if somebody, that is definitely something you try to hide about yourself. Because yeah. These kids, you're not stupid. She's only four years older than me. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. she had has seen full house yeah she's seen mm-hmm. you know family matters she knows what a house is supposed to look like yeah and hers doesn't look like that. right but cynthia's like even more reason you're coming to class <laughs> every day and misty was on point in three months shit that's i want to make this clear she started ballet at 13 which is, is so late so late yeah she was training more and more, but it was too stressful for her family at home, especially her mother. She didn't like her daughter being bussed around by this woman. She didn't like, and if, and then sometimes she would just take a bus two hours away to this place to go get dance lessons and, you know, come home super late every night. So Sylvia told Misty that she was like, you're just going to have to give this up. We cannot make this mm-hmm. work. And like most dance schools are in operation from about four to nine at night. Yeah. And a lot of girls, mm-hmm. people like one of my good friends, Sam Brown, she was there every day. Yeah. From four every to nine. day. Four to nine. Four to nine. Take different classes. Point, ballet, jazz, tap, solo classes, group classes, blah, blah, blah. Like it is like another job after school for girls who do it seriously. Yeah. So then to be two hours away, that means you're not getting home till 11. Yeah. That's late for a 13 year old. So late. So her mom was like, I'm sorry. This is just, this can't happen. Cynthia Bradley, the dance teacher is like, I am not going to let you quit. Why don't you move in with me? Misty moves in with her and her family so she could keep dancing. She lived there during the week and took the bus to come home on the weekends. And by the age of 14, only dancing a year, Misty was the winner of a national ballet contest and won her first solo role. One year. One year. Within a year, she was cast as Clara in the Nutcracker at San Pedro High School. This performance drew 2,000 patrons per show. She had only been studying for eight months at this point. That's insane. Outrageous. Yeah. Because, like, I hear about, like, people like uh, Gabby Douglas in gymnastics who, like, moved away from home. Yeah. She moved away from home to live with somebody else with her Olympic trainer. Uh But she'd been doing it since she was, what, two, three? Exactly. One year of dance? No. Less than a year. It's insane. That takes so much training. Yeah. It's unbelievable i think that's what really blew me away was like i didn't realize that she was such a natural yes like i didn't realize that it was that quick um but more and more roles came her way in the local dance scene and she became increasingly close with the bradley family she even attended synagogue with them and like went to shabbat dinner because they were jewish and by the time misty was going into 10th grade cynthia even started homeschooling misty herself so she would have more time to train Cynthia Bradley, a true hero. Like, (laughs) she was so invested in Misty. Right. Like, just a fascinating woman. At 15 years old, Misty won first place in the Los Angeles Music Center Spotlight Awards. This came with a $2,500 scholarship prize and secured her recognition by the Los Angeles Times as the best 
young dancer in the greater Los Angeles area. After that, she attended the summer workshop at the San Francisco Ballet School in 1998, where she was placed in the most advanced classes. She had received a full tuition plus expenses scholarship, and then at the end of the workshop, she received one of very few offers to continue as a full-time student at the school. Mm. And this is a huge deal considering that the San Francisco Ballet is one of the three prominent ballet schools in the U.S. You have okay. that, you have American Ballet Theater, mm-hmm. and you have New York City Ballet. Right. Those are like the three fucking ones. But she turned it down because her mother wanted her to come home and finish high school first. But home at this point was not a good place for Misty. She and her mother fought frequently, and her mother really did not the, like the influence of Cynthia Bradley on Misty. She felt like she was being replaced as a mother and also a little bit mad that Misty was becoming a dancer because Sylvia had once had similar dreams but only made it as far as becoming a Kansas City Chiefs cheerleader before she had six children. So I think that that has a lot to do with it, that, like, we're not really (laughs) – like, that's a lot. It is a lot, and it's a lot to feel like your child's being taken away. Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. But also, she had six kids. She could not give Misty the attention that Cynthia was. And she, she was couldn't. working all night. Yeah. Like, and it sucks because she's in, and I'm not blaming her. She's in, yeah. like, an, she's in a rough situation because yeah. she, like, wants to be a mom to Misty. But she literally can't give her the things that Cynthia is. And that must feel fucking terrible. Yeah. It must feel like shit. But... When Misty came home this time after turning down this great opportunity in San Francisco, things got serious and they got really bad. Her mother decided that she would never be going back to the Bradleys. And Misty knew that this meant that her dancing career was over because Cynthia was the person who was working behind the scenes, getting her into this exclusive world that is very difficult to navigate. How else would she know to go after these scholarships and these things and get in these competitions? Like, you have to be backed by a dance school. Yeah. You can't just go in as a solo agent. No. I don't think. I don't know. I wasn't a dancer, but. I mean, you need registration. You need yeah. proof that you've been training. You need. These are you need high someone to caliber, pay the fees. High caliber companies. You need someone to pay for your new point shoes. Yeah. Because you need. I mean, girls go through like 10 pairs of point shoes a week. Yeah. And, like, you need somebody to pay for costumes. You need somebody who's going to measure you. You need tights. You need hair bun equipment. Hairspray. The appropriate jewelry, (laughs) the appropriate nail color. Mm -hmm. Like, it is an expensive and brutal, like, field to get into. Yes. So, Misty was like, if I'm not allowed to see Cynthia Bradley, like, I don't think I can do this. So, she packed her bags and ran away from home. She stayed with a friend because she knew that they would be looking for her at the Bradley, so she thought it wasn't a safe place. And she stayed there for three days while her mother filed a missing persons report. The police are looking for her. Misty calls Cynthia Bradley and says, I heard this term while I was in San Francisco called emancipation. Can you help me with the process so I can stay with you and keep dancing? Cynthia finds a lawyer. They start the paperwork. And they go, stay where you are, and we will deliver this letter to your mother while you're not around because the lawyer said it is best if emancipation letters are sent to the parents without the children around. But after three days, the police eventually find her and return her to her mother. Sylvia is so upset about all this because obviously she's received the emancipation letter at this point. 
she files multiple restraining orders against the Bradley family, including one against their five-year-old son. They go to court, and Sylvia is claiming that the Bradleys have brainwashed Misty into filing the emancipation, and she goes, they've poisoned her against me by telling, you know, Misty that I'm stupid and I don't know anything, and that's not true. And, you know, then you have the Bradleys saying, well, you know, we have paperwork signed. Like, you gave me right to manage her career, and that's what I'm doing. So, like, if you don't let her see me, I can't manage her career. The whole case got so ugly, so terrible, and it was highly publicized. Multiple news outlets in the California area are following this case closely. It is like headlines are like, Copeland custody case going to trial today. Like, Mm. it is so horrible. And the group all appeared together on a daytime talk show called Lisa. And what it ended up being was Sylvia and Cynthia bickering while Misty sat there silent and crying on the stage. It's so sad to see because she's a teenager and she's having, like, her mom and her dance teacher just, like, fighting on national television, just being so nasty to each other. Like, she just didn't deserve that. It's so terrible. But it was eventually concluded when Sylvia promised that Misty would always be allowed to dance, and the Bradleys had to sign a sworn statement saying, we have not and will never do anything to interfere with Missy's relationship with her mother. Emancipation orders were dropped. Restraining orders were dropped. But Sylvia still did not want the Bradleys to have any more contact with Misty, so she moved back in with her mother, re-enrolled at San Pedro High School for her junior year, um, but now she could only dance in the afternoons after school, and she had to attend a different ballet school. So she went to the Lauritsen Ballet Center in Torrance with former ABT dancer Diane Lauritsen, which was good because from the get-go, you know, we talked about San Francisco Ballet, New York City Ballet, and American Ballet Theater. American Ballet Theater was always her goal. It was kind of her white whale. She was like, I want to be there. I don't know what it is about that one, but, like, I want to be there. So to study under someone who was a part of that theater was a really big deal for her. So it was good for her to get under this tutelage. And it's also good that she's just not going to some, like, rec program. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No. So this is a good compromise, but I think it did – it sucked that she had to be cut off from Cynthia because mm-hmm. I don't think either of them wanted that, but it was just the only way to, like, get her to keep dancing. So the whole thing fucking sucked. Misty did eventually graduate from high school with a 3.8 GPA, and that summer she joined the American Ballet Theater Summer Intensive Program. Of the 150 dancers in the 2000 summer program, she was one of six selected to join the junior dance troupe. Mm. That's a lot of girls to be one of six. Yeah. (laughs) That September, she joined the ABT Studio Company, which is their second company, and she became a member of its corps de ballet in 2001. She was quickly skyrocketing, even performing in Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty, Parado. But just eight months in, she is sidelined for nearly a year by a lumbar stress fracture. So at age 19, her puberty had been delayed, which is a situation common in intense ballet dancers. And after after the lumbar fracture, her doctor told her that they had to induce puberty in her because it would help her strengthen her bones, and so he prescribed her birth control pills. Misty recalls that in one month, she gained 10 pounds, and her small breasts 
swelled to double D cup size. Shit. <laughs> As a dancer, that's not the shape you want. No, that is it is not. Not the figure you're going for. Misty said, leotards had to be altered for me to cover my clear cleavage, for instance. I hated this sign that I was different from the others. I became so self-conscious that for the first time in my life, I couldn't dance strong. I was too busy trying to hide my breasts. Management noticed and called her in to talk about her body. Because now she's not in the dance studio. She is in a professional setting. Mm -hmm. She is literally a part of a company. And the professional pressure to conform to conventional ballet aesthetics resulted in body image struggles and an eating disorder. The fact that she didn't look like other ball ballerinas was now going beyond skin color. She was too muscular. She was too curvy. She just wasn't the ideal. Like, it just fucking sucks. Mm -hmm. It absolutely sucks. Because she's a great dancer, but she's not fitting what people think a dancer mm -hmm. looks like. Yeah. But thankfully, while she's dealing with this, she actually starts to find friendships outside of dance. Um, like she became really close with um, fellow black dancer Victoria Rowell, um, who was just kind of like another person in the industry who she was able to talk to. And she was like closer to her age. So mm -hmm. she has a lot of mentors eventually. But this girl was someone who she could like talk to in the moment who was experiencing similar things. Mm. Um, and then she also met a lawyer named Olu Evans, who she started dating which we'll get more into later. And these new relationships, she said, helped her redefine her relationship with her body. She explained, my curves became an integral part of who I am as a dancer, not something I needed to lose to become one. I started dancing with confidence and joy, and soon the staff at ABT began giving me positive feedback again. And I think I changed everyone's mind about what a perfect dancer is supposed to look like. I love. <sighs> But even though she's becoming more confident with her body, there is another big aspect of her ballet career that starts to weigh on her while she especially is in the court of ballet. She is the only black woman in the company. <laughs> she felt a burden because of her ethnicity, and it was kind of starting to affect her. She wasn't sure what her future looked like as a black ballerina because she's like, okay, I'm in the core, but can I get promoted? Because you get into it so young. You're not really thinking that far. And now that she's actually making a career out of it, it's kind of like, am I ever going to move past this? Because there are some girls who never move past the core. Yeah. Like, they never do. Is this a management position or right. am I stuck here, like in the drags? Yeah. So this time, <laughs> instead of giving her an eating disorder, a senior staff member at ABT decided to introduce her to Susan Fales Hill. She was then the vice chair of ABT's board of directors um, and she started to mentor her and guide her in her career. So she was a black woman who like had a lot of experience in the classical ballet world. And she started to introduce Missy to other black female trailblazers who helped her to gain perspective and confidence. Like this woman, Susan, was like a huge influence on Misty. Just like this guiding po like light to be like, you do have a future in this. Don't worry about that. Yeah. I know that no one else looks like you right now. Yeah, don't give up. <laughs> but don't give up. Like This is important. Yeah, this is exactly why representation matters. It, it, yes, absolutely. But all of these struggles were totally lost on anyone who saw her dance. Early career reviews mentioned Misty as more than radiant than, 
sorry, as more radiant than higher ranking dancers. And she was named to the 2003 class of Dance Magazine's 25 to Watch. <laughs> Over the next few years, she kept getting more and more roles and more and more positive press. People just loved her. And by 2007, she was made a soloist at the American Ballet Theater, becoming one of the youngest dancers to accomplish this. Then in 2009, something very interesting happened. Misty got a call saying... I have been looking for you for a year. It was Prince. <laughs> Prince is bananas. Yes. Yes, yes. Every story I hear about Prince is, is just off the walls. I like don't even think he was a real person. No. Yeah. He just likes what he likes and yeah. is not ashamed to like find some back alley like subway performer and yeah. be like, I want you to come and play yeah. in my band. Well, this is the thing. I'm like, how it. I'm sorry, is Misty Copeland as a soloist for the ABT like that hard to get a hold of? Like what? He Why? Said, I've been looking for you for a year. It's Prince. It's Prince. I think you can do whatever you want. <laughs> so he wanted her to be in his music video for his cover of Crimson and Clover. He was like, I couldn't find you. I hired another dancer. And I said, she just won't do. I need you to come and do this. So she did it. And he was like, I need even more. Come on tour with me. So she did. She toured in Europe with him during her off season and then came back to the U.S. and toured with him a bit more. She went on like talk, like late night shows with him. Like they performed on the George Lopez show. Which it was a delightful performance. It was so good. She's literally on point on a piano, which is I was so scared for her. I was like, that is such a small space. Yeah. To be on point. Um, She's got a lot of control of her body, if you haven't noticed. Yes. <laughs> But there were even times when she was rehearsing the Nutcracker in New York while performing with Prince in New Jersey at night. <laughs> it was cool it's and a commuter rewarding, city, <laughs> but it was grueling. Oh, I'm sure. Two performances a day, uh, two I, different performances a day. Unreal. But talk about becoming a household name. Oh, my god. Like, gosh, I, know, I know, yes, being the first African-American principal dancer for ABT is going to be a big deal. But, like, Prince is, like, Performing with Prince, that makes you iconic. There's it a really difference. There There's a big a difference. difference. But she said it was a really important time for her because she felt like she was finally able to be creatively free. Mm. Classical ballet is incredible, but it's also very rigorous. Right. <laughs> so to be joined up with this legendary artist and have him say, I trust you, do what you feel is right, was amazing for her. And, of course, this even got her more attention in the press, and she was invited to be a guest judge on the show, So You Think You Can Dance. But she's still very serious about her career at American uh, Ballet Theater, ABT. And in 2012, she was cast in her most prestigious ballet to date, Firebird, as the lead performing at the Met. I mean, this is the role that normally goes to a principal ballet dancer in here. Mm -hmm. She's just a soloist getting the lead i mean i mean this is a full length ballet so this is something she is on stage a lot it's not like she's like coming on for just a second and then leaving she's not the sugar plum fairy not the sugar plum fairy she is the lead in this but while rehearsing for her performance she noticed a pain in her left leg she ignored it she didn't tell anybody because she didn't want to miss out on the opportunity and she danced the Firebird with six hairline fractures. 
in her shins. And I'm sorry, just in one shin. Six fractures in one shin. How did she do that? Did she fall down the stairs? Like, how the fuck do you get just stress? Stress fractures. Stress fractures. Yeah. Stress fractures. (laughs) I don't understand. Are bones just like shiving off her leg? Like, that's insane. So she gets through the performance. This performance is so legendary that she only needed to do one. To be clear, like, she is known specifically for this role she writes a book later called firebird and she only got to do one performance of it because of this fracture but it was so legendary because she said it was the youngest audience that had ever come to the ballet it was over half of the people there were people of color right had come to see me like this was bringing in people who never would go to the ballet if it wasn't for me performing she was like I had to do it perfectly. And she did. But then after this, the doctor was like, you might not ever dance again. <laughs> like, yeah. that was stupid. Please calm, <laughs> please calm down. She needed surgery. She had to have plates put in her shin bones, in her tibia. Unbelievable. And, yeah, there was a strong possibility that she would never dance again. But after seven months of intense physical therapy, and she did something called floor bar for a long time or it was like you're not standing you're laying on the floor and just doing all the moves mm-hmm. as you normally would which does sound like a good exercise um she was back at it and in may of 2013 she was back and danced the queen of the dryads in don quixote seven months later after six fractures in her life she's got a real under a year track record going yes she does <laughs> she does not like to take more of a year for anything <laughs> She returned with a vengeance, and eventually she went on tour with other companies, dancing in the lead roles in Romeo and Juliet. She played the double Swan Lake role of Odette and Odine in, like, multiple times for Swan Lake, even at the Kennedy Center. Of course she did. Of course she did. You have to do Swan Lake if you're a dancer. Yes. Then in 2014, she gets another very important, very unexpected phone call. President Obama. Under Armour. Damn, <laughs> very similar. <laughs> Wanted to partner with Misty and make her a sponsored athlete. The company, based here in Baltimore, Maryland, wanted to do a whole campaign focused on women in sports. And let me tell you, it was effective. Yes, it was. I used to watch the Misty Copeland Under Armour commercial on the regular to inspire myself. Along with the U.S. gymnastics uh, team mm-hmm. commercial, because that was also a really good one. Well, I think also <laughs> that this Under Armour ad reminded people that dance is a sport. Yes. I think that people often look at it as a performance, which mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. but it is so athletic. Yeah, it is. And if you haven't seen it, she's wearing this great, like, sports bra, like, sports mm-hmm. underwear. You can see every muscle in her body. She looks incredible, and she's just slowly turning on point. Mm-hmm. And there's a little girl off camera reading her rejection letters she got mm. early in her career. And it's in black and white, yes? I feel like no. I remember one of them. One of her commercials is black and Yeah, white. I think one of them is. But this one is in color. And this girl's reading the rejection letters that she got that are like, your bust is too big. Your calves are too strong. You're too muscular. You don't fit the type. Which are real fucking responses she has gotten to her dance career of like, you are not designed for this. And then, of course, like, she's dancing all over the stage. She looks incredible. It's so inspiring. This commercial was named one of the best, one of the 10 best ads of 2014. (laughs) And it was the year's best campaign targeting women. 
This ad was credited with boosting ad sales for Under Armour, and she was making more money with them than in her ballet career at the time. (laughs) (laughs) It even led to her having her own line of activewear, which is so fucking cool. And let me tell you, I was watching it. I was like, I think I need this. Whatever she's wearing, I I want to wear that. That's what I want to wear. That's a good ad. That's a really good good ad. ad. Then on June 30th, 2015, Misty was in a dance class. It's the end of the season and the, you know, artistic director comes into the class and they're giving out promotions for next year. It's like, okay, you court of ballet members, you're now soloists, da, 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 da. And then he looks at Misty and he says, Misty, take a bow. He didn't even need to say it. Everyone (laughs) knew that she had just become a principal dancer. Not just a principal dancer, but the first African-American woman to be promoted to principal ballerina in ABT's 75-year history. Amazing. Everyone knew. He just said, take a bow. Which I, oh my gosh. Because she was so good. (laughs) She was telling the story to Ina Garten, and I'm like, I'm crying. Ina Garten's crying. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there had been a few black principal ballerinas at other companies. But this was the first time this has happened at a major international company. Yeah, like this is a premier company. Yes. And like we said, one of the three. Yeah, one of the three. It was a huge fucking deal. I guess one of the three in the U.S. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And it opened up even more opportunities for her, including getting to be on Broadway in the show On the Town, which is very (laughs) exciting. In that same year, a documentary came out called A Ballerina's Tale. This project was started in 2013 during Misty's comeback after her tibia fractures. A filmmaker wanted to follow her journey, which he hoped would end in her becoming principal dancer, and (laughs) thankfully it did. Good forethought. (laughs) Yeah, and this released in 2015 uh, to positive reviews. Also in 2015, Misty got engaged to her long-term boyfriend, Olu Evans. We mentioned him briefly earlier. They were married on July 31st, 2016. And the way they met is actually so cute. <laughs> so apparently Tay Diggs was in a restaurant. and he As come, he does. As he does. He come, this is a very famous actor. <laughs> he comes up to Misty and he says, can I introduce you to my cousin? He thinks you're beautiful. Misty's like, you mean that guy I've been eyeing up all night? <laughs> Absolutely. And that was that. Olu was her first boyfriend ever. She goes, I had never done, I'd never kissed anyone. I'd never done anything with anyone until I met him. Because I was focusing on dance. like, <laughs> And like, you know, your fucking crazy family. Yeah, like, exactly. It's not like you had a lot of opportunity. And they've been together ever since. And they had their first child, Ascending Jackson, in 2022. In 2017, she made another big leap for female athletes in advertisements by becoming a spokesperson for an Estee Lauder fragrance. Oh, my God. Stop it. That's accidental. This is an accidental situation. I can't. I couldn't believe it when I read it. W Magazine called her Estee Lauder campaign groundbreaking because cosmetic companies have rarely employed spokespersons that weren't just like professional models like Mm -hmm. this was so different which i love (laughs) and then in 2018 she danced the lead ballerina role in the 2018 disney film the nutcracker in the four realms misty is also a prolific writer she wrote a children's book in 2014 called firebird and a memoir called life in motion an unlikely ballerina which was co-authored by sharice jones 
In 2017, she released the book Ballerina Body, a health and fitness guide. In 2020, she wrote another children's book called Bunheads, 2020 Run. Um, she wrote Black Ballerinas, My Journey to Our Legacy. And in 2022, she released another memoir, The Wind at My Back, Resilience, Grace, and Other Gifts from my mentor, Raven Wilkinson, co-written by Susan Faleshill. So Raven Wilkinson and Susan Faleshill, this is kind of like, those are her two big mentors. Mm -hmm. Like, we didn't get into Raven too much, but like, she is a black dancer who is like, we should do a whole fucking episode on her. Like, yeah. she's incredible. And she was one of the people who really, like, helped Courier Misty through her career and, like, up and coming. It's just, it's incredible. Um, but it's not just books she is leaving for the future. Also in 2022, Misty founded the Misty Copeland Foundation, which provides after-school programs for children ages 8 to 10 that combine affordable ballet training in the communities where they live alongside health and wellness and musicianship, mentoring, and general tutoring components. It's basically like, you know, a lot of boys and girls clubs have gone away. And she's like, we need to bring these back because, like, my life would not look like this without them. Obviously, between the pandemic shutting theaters down, her personal life exploding, um, having a child, and, of course, all the other cool shit Misty is doing, she has not been back to the ABT since 2019. But she is still a principal dancer with them, and actually this fall, in 2023, she plans to return to the stage, which is very exciting. But she's coming back on her own terms. She plans on dancing in roles that challenge her artistically, but also leaving space for other up-and-coming dancers. But before that, she's actually making another premiere with her first self-produced short film called Flower, which debuted in June at the Tribeca Film Festival. This is a 28-minute film that she produced and she stars in and dances in, filmed in Oakland, California. It is a powerful art activism short that explores issues of gentrification, homelessness, and the need for intergenerational equity. Misty said of the project, Flower is an homage to black silent race films of the 1920s, to the intrinsic human ability to express ourselves through movement and the universal language of dance. Mm. So there is no dialogue in this film, but it's because it's, again, an homage to these silent films, and it is also more like a ballet. You get the whole story through the music and the movement. But it was filmed during COVID, so not only was production difficult because they had a couple bouts of COVID, but she was three months pregnant while filming. The film culminates with a beautiful pot of dough. And she said in an Instagram post that she made today, uh, this is how current this podcast is. <laughs> She's watching the potted and she goes, oh, I was so sick during the filming. <laughs> she was like, I was having horrible morning sickness. And she was like, it was literally painful for my dancing partner to go anywhere near my stomach. It's kind of difficult to avoid in a pot of dough. Yeah, <laughs> honestly. Um, but she got through it, and the film is beautiful. People are loving it, and it's just a really great, like, first movement towards, like, making a different kind of film that combines mm -hmm. all these things that she's passionate about. I will say, too, as somebody, like, who lives in a pretty big city on the East Coast, mm -hmm. or fairly big, and goes to Philly, and D.C., and New York, and Boston... I have not experienced homelessness like I did when we were in L.A. Really? Like, California homelessness is a different, it's at a different level. Mm. And that's just, like, what I could see. 
Right. Yeah. You know, from the one week I was there. Yeah. Well, and that's what like one of the big things that she's trying to get, you know, one of the big messages of the film Mm -hmm. is like, this is an issue and it affects so many people. Like we need to stop ignoring it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Misty is currently 40 years old. And frankly, this story is not even her complete tale. I didn't get into her honorary doctorates and all the other incredible things that she's done and the awards that she's done because it was, it would just be a list, you know? Yeah. And there's all these like incredible ballets that she's been a part of. And I was like, I literally can't just list all the roles. Too much. Too much. But she has done so much for the world of ballet and especially young women of color who just want to go far in it, you know? And now she is the role model that she needed when she was younger to be like, you can do this. It is possible. And of course, I believe, along with many others, that she has a lot left to do. So I personally can't wait to see what the Firebird does next. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a great story. story. I know. What an amazing person. I love her. (laughs) She's perfect. (sighs) All right. And like, what an up and comer of like our age group. I know. Of like, you've made such a really important impact. Like, good for you. I know. It's so fun. All right, well, now we need to talk about these two ladies in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. I mean, just talk about coming from nothing. Like, Estee Lauder definitely lied about it, but she came from nothing. Yeah. They lived in a crappy spot in Queens. They were poor. She had a million siblings. Mm -hmm. The family's struggling. All the kids are working to help support the family. Yeah. Like, and I feel like that's Misty's childhood. Yeah. Well, and I feel like that is the big difference between where Estee Lauder, like the time period when Estee grew up and when Misty grew up, because now that kind of story is so incredibly inspirational. Mm -hmm. Back then, it wasn't reaching the people that would find it inspirational. It's reaching people who would be like, oh, you don't belong with us. You don't belong with us. And I think that's the big difference is visibility. Mm-hmm. Like, Estee Lauder still is like kind of a mysterious figure because, frankly, she had to be in the time period she was working in. Yeah. With Misty, it benefits her to be like, this is my story. And she wants people like her to read it and be inspired from it. But... Estee knew like she did not have the luxury of being able to be honest about her story. She literally didn't like, (laughs) yeah, she didn't. But I think they both also like dealt with a really a big struggle with representation. Oh yeah. Uh, You know, when Estee Lauder was born, women couldn't vote. Mm -hmm. Women couldn't have credit cards. Mm -hmm. Women couldn't own businesses. Women didn't work outside the home. Women didn't make more money than their husbands. And Estee Lauder did all of those things with absolutely nobody paving the way. Right. Well, and that's what I felt like they were both serving these like underserved communities. Mm -hmm. Estee Lauder was one of the first people to be like, women also have buying power. Yeah. They also like to smell good for themselves, not just because their husband told them to smell good. Mm -hmm. So why don't we cater to them? Mm -hmm. Misty Copeland is doing the same thing. She goes, you know what? Young black girls also maybe want to be dancers. Also want to have a professional career. Girls that have no money deserve ballet programs exactly and i feel like they were both really focused on just this demographic that other people are totally ignoring Mm -hmm. yeah i think um you know a lot of what misty copeland did 
for the sport is a lot like what Tiger Woods did. It oh, is yeah. a rich person sport. Mm-hmm. Things like golf, things like dance, things mm-hmm. like lacrosse, where you need lots of money and lots mm-hmm. of privilege just to be included in practice. Yeah. Um, and I think the same was true of the makeup industry. Like, if you don't have a, an in with mm-hmm. Saks Fifth Avenue, nobody's going to give you the light of day. Yeah. You have to fight to get in there Mm -hmm. and like you have to find people who are willing to believe in you Mm -hmm. and if you find the right amount of rich people Mm -hmm. or people who used to be in the abt that believe in you yeah you might get a leg up but you got to figure it out by yourself yeah absolutely nothing's handed nothing was handed to either of these women god no and i also think it's interesting that um they both had kind of these white whales like you were talking about Saks fifth avenue and i feel like missy's was the abt oh yeah were like they could do other things. Misty was winning other contests. She was getting into all these summer programs, but she was like, "I want that one." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I yeah. don't know what it is, but like, Estee's doing the same thing. She goes, "I know I'm in these other stores, but I want Saks. Mm-hmm. I want this one." And I think that that laser focusedness is yeah. so important when you want to make it far. I think the way in which they're primarily different is Estee Lauder as a woman thought she had the answer and that she thought the answer was to look this one specific way. Mm -hmm. And people like Misty Copeland have spent decades trying to break that mold that was Mm -hmm. set up by, I mean, it's set up by the patriarchy, but white women could very easily live within it. Mm -hmm. This is how I'm supposed to look. This is how I'm supposed to dress. And because that fits the patriarchal beauty standards, I can at least function here. Right. Misty had to go above and beyond to even function Mm -hmm. because of her curves, because Mm -hmm. of her muscles, because of her skin tone. Mm -hmm. So I think that is where Estee Lauder definitely uh, had a leg up in the community is that Mm -hmm. she um, wasn't uh, she didn't present as Jewish. She didn't use her Jewish last name, Menser. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of things that she was dodgy about, again, because she had to, Mm -hmm. but also because she could present as a blue blood white woman. Right. Yeah. And like Misty doesn't have that option. Yeah. And also, like, thankfully, when she grew up, she didn't like it would have definitely been easier. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, I just there was no getting around like Misty had to go through, whereas Estee could go around. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I just think that they're both so ingenious, but also like kind of we're talking about with like around versus through. There's also a confidence issue between them. Mm. Estee Lauder, I don't know if she actually was that confident or like she was just pretending to be, but it just seemed like every decision she made, she was like, I know I'm supposed to be here. I know I'm supposed to be in sex. So I'm like, I'm just literally going to stand here and break perfume bottles everywhere yeah. because I, I think deserve she get to be here. She was like, mine's just better. Right. Why exactly. would you buy this, this, mm-hmm. you know, Balenciaga <laughs> shit that's poisoning you when yeah. mine's literally just a better cream. Right. So like, I really do think that she just had this confidence because she knew she was right. Whereas mm-hmm. like, I think Misty lacked a lot of confidence. Oh, my God. How could you not how growing you up not? the way you did? And because every way she's turning, people are like, you don't belong here. You don't belong here because you're poor. You don't belong here because you're black. You don't belong here because you have big boobs. And, like, the further she got along in her career, it seemed like there were more things that she, like, made her not supposed to be there. And thankfully, there were people that were there to uplift her. She found mentors. She found friends who were like, no, no. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. And Estee didn't really seem to have any. 
she was just running on her own internal confidence, which I think it's important to acknowledge that both people exist because Mm -hmm. sometimes I think a lot of imposter syndrome comes from seeing the Estes in life and being like, all right, well, I don't have that confidence innately. So like, maybe I don't deserve to be here, but there are most people are like Misty where it's like, sometimes you need someone else to be in your fucking corner and be like, you're really good at this because unlike Este, you don't know always if you're Mm -hmm. good at this. (laughs) So I like that they're both different versions of like how much confidence you can have and still be successful. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. That's great. And let's just point out that both Wallace Simpson and Under Armour are Baltimore (laughs) call-outs. Yes, both Baltimore connections. Mm -hmm. We love to see it. All right. And when they both branched out their brands, I love that too. Oh, yeah. More and more and more. More Money, connections, (sighs) greatness. All right. (sighs) We ready to do this? I am. Who would you like to toast this evening? I mean, my toast applies to both of them. I ju- mm. People with grit and grind. Yeah. Their careers, entrepreneur and dancer, are not careers that you can do without continual, constant practice and, like, just grit and grind. The, yeah. hustler, the hustlers. The people the who hustlers. aren't going to let it go. Love it. Cheers. To Prince. <laughs> I'm going to toast. The unlikely prodigies. It must have been so hard for Misty being constantly told, you're a prodigy, and then being told, but you're also not right for this. It's Mm -hmm. like she was getting conflicting messages from day one, and that is so fucking annoying because I imagine that created quite, like like I was just saying, it's like, how is she supposed to know what's going on if they're like, you're the best ballet dancer I've ever seen with the least amount of experience? But you're not right. It's but like, we don't want you. We, we also don't want you to work here. We want you to work somewhere. Somewhere, because you're a great dancer. And not, here, not here. Not with me. So to the prodigies who look different. Yes. <laughs> Cheers. All right. What would you like to promote this week? So I told you a little bit about this last week, like just personally. I'm kind of in the middle of this. I stopped this documentary to read Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl all the mm-hmm. way through because I had read pieces of it for our interview. But I'm reading a weird memoir slash like fictionalized book called When Women Were Dragons. Mm-hmm. And it is so interesting because every female issue is just made into the metaphor of a dragon. Mm-hmm. And just something like, and it's it's set in like the 50s, the 60s, when women weren't allowed to talk about health issues or cancer or miscarriages or, you know, leaving the home or, you know, that they're bored making dinner every night. And it's just, you know, the, the recollections of this person being like, oh, you know, my mom left because, she, you know, she was becoming a dragon. But we weren't allowed to talk about the fact that she was becoming a dragon. Just all women at some point become a dragon, but we're not allowed to talk about it. And it's just very interesting because you can tell it's a true story but the pr- it's so nicely done yeah uh and i just didn't expect it when i started reading it yeah so i think it's good if you're looking for something like you're kind of looking for a palate cleanser mm-hmm. i usually read a lot of fiction and then move to a memoir for a mm-hmm. palate cleanser or like a non-fiction to be like okay mm-hmm. i need to reset and this is my palate cleanser because it's a one-off yeah so that's what I'm reading. I really enjoy it. It inspired my brain. It has super, super feminist like um, themes in it. Yeah. That's just great. Love that. What about you? 
I'm going to promote the show, Loot. It's on Apple. So I've got Apple TV Plus, whatever it is, um, to watch Ted Lasso. Are you loving it so far? I love Ted Lasso. It's so good. But I love Loot. Well, you're more. done Ted Lasso, right? Done Ted Lasso. Okay, yeah. Now I'm on to Loot. It's only one season so far. It stars Maya Rudolph. And it's basically like a fictionalized story of like um, Jeff Bezos' wife. You know how like she got half of his fortune and then just started giving everything away to charity. Yeah. This is that story, but it's Maya Rudolph, and she's so fucking funny. Yeah. So, like, her husband leaves her for, like, a 20-something-year-old, you know, and she has been there since the beginning. Like, she's like, you use, like, my garage to make your fucking computer codes. Like, fuck you. And then she just is, like, a multi-billionaire and has all this money. And then she discovers that she's had a foundation called the Molly Wells Foundation for years that she has no, she doesn't even know what it is. <laughs> so she gets there. She even has an office at this foundation. She goes, I don't even know what this building is. I've never been here. And it's basically her coming in as now an out of touch billionaire and sure. trying to help people. And they're like, you don't know what's going on. Like, you don't know how this works. And like, it's heartwarming. It's good. I love Maya Rudolph. I love everyone else involved in the show. It's so good. Um, it's just, it's light and it's fun and it's really good. And then it's also just kind of like, you know, glamour porn or like, you're just like, so opulent. <laughs> I love Maya. I just love so much. Yeah. I can't like wrap my mind around her and her career. She's the best. Yeah. I, I just can't wrap my mind around it because she's in so many weird things that are all so different. Yeah, so different, so good. And um, her billionaire husband is Adam Scott, who, you know, from Parks and Rec, yeah, yeah, which yeah. I love. Ben Wyatt. Ben Wyatt. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's just, it's a really, it's, it's a good show. I love it. That's so perfect. Yeah, it's, a, it's just a fun thing. And it's only one season, so it's not a huge commitment. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for joining us. Find us everywhere. Join us during the week and on Patreon. We're figuring Um, it out. It's kind of been a little bit of a summer break on Patreon, but we've got so much good content built up there and Mm -hmm. we're sending more over this week. Mm -hmm. So it's great. It's going to be good. So join us there for as little as a dollar a month. You can contribute to the ever-growing cocktail fund. (laughs) (laughs) It's getting so lavish because we have to keep making up new shit. I bought passion fruit syrup this week guys what are we ever going to use that for i might use it a little because it's funny i've been wanting to put passion fruit in a cocktail for a little mm, bit because i think okay. it's summer um and then i saw it, i was going to buy orgiat syrup and then i saw the passion fruit and i was like might as well go big <laughs> or go home or go home i would have just went home um so again thank you all uh come and hang out with us but most of all we want you to never forget that well-behaved women take no for an answer yeah they do (laughs) they really make history (laughs) goodbye
listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.